Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. Man Talks exists to help develop self aware, high performing, and impactful men in the world, the type of men you want to be and the type of men you want to be around. This podcast specifically brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Before we dive into today's topic, I just want to remind all the guys out there to head over to Facebook and join the Man Talks community. We've got over a thousand guys in there from around the world who are having some great conversations on a daily basis about health and fitness, family and finance, business and entrepreneurship, cryptocurrency, you name it, we jam on it. We've got weekly challenges, got some great giveaways. And so I encourage you to go join the community. It's free and there are some incredible people and incredible resources in there. Uh, You can go to facebook.com forward slash Mantox community, or you can just search Mantox community in the search field on Facebook. For all of the guys in Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto, I just want to remind you, we've got some great events uh, up and coming, so don't forget to check mantalks.com or subscribe to the newsletter so that you can get updated on the events that are happening in your city. And I want to remind you to go and check out the mastermind groups. We've got live masterminds in Vancouver and Calgary and launching in Toronto soon. Uh, In Vancouver alone, we've got over 100 members, and we are growing rapidly. So head on over to mantalks.com forward slash masterminds and check that out. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at info at mantalks.com. So today we are going to be having a conversation about success. Uh, What success is, how a lot of people really struggle to define what it is, define, you know, what it feels like to be fulfilled in that success. And I'm going to be interviewing Eric Barker. And Eric Barker is actually a thought leader in the field of success. His humorous but practical blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, presents science-based answers and expert insights on success in life. Over 270,000 people subscribe to his weekly email update where he sends out uh, some content. And his content is actually syndicated by Time, The Week, and Business Insider. He's been featured on the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and he was a columnist for Wired. Uh, With a writing career spanning over 20 years, Eric is also a sought-after speaker and interview subject uh, and has been invited to speak at MIT, West Point, NPR affiliates, and on morning television. We are going to dive into his book today called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong. So we are going to have a really interesting conversation today about how a lot of people set themselves up for failure when it comes to success because they don't identify what success actually is for them. Uh, We are going to dive into some of the common misconceptions, uh, misconceptions like do nice guys finish last, misconceptions like Um, You know, do you work super hard and just give everything to that? Or do you aim for work-life balance? Uh, Misconceptions like do you quitters never win and, and winners never quit? And the idea of believing in yourself, when that's important and when humbleness is actually important. So it's a really incredible conversation. All of his conversation is backed up by research from Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Yale, a bunch of incredible universities and colleges from around the United States. And the research is all about success and happiness and how to make some subtle shifts in our life on a daily basis in order to work to work towards more true, traditional, fulfilling success. So without any further delay, without any further ado, I would like to invite on 
Mr. Eric Barker. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to interview you because I think that your your book and the and the ideas and the concepts that you have are so relevant. And before we dive into that, I'm going to start off with the epic question that we always ask all of our guests, which is tell us, tell the listeners, myself, a story, a defining moment for you uh, that, that really sort of cultivated and created who you are today. I mean, for me, what was, was really critical was for, uh, for 10 years after graduating college, I was a screenwriter in Hollywood and, you know, I got tired of the, the uh, ups and downs of the, of the Hollywood lifestyle and I didn't think I had like a, you know, a clear skill set. I mean, being able to, you know, write comedy and, you know, write creative writing, you know, isn't really transferable skill. And I thought I was, you know, a really capable person, but I wasn't sure like what, what was next for me. And it was a real, I, I came to a really, a kind of a really, a real crossroads. And, and honestly, that's part of what led me to a big part of what led me to starting the blog and writing the book, you know, about trying to get some real answers to success because for the longest time I'd been seeking stuff and it, it just, you know, the old maxims we heard didn't seem to line up. Those didn't seem to work for me. I felt, you know, I was a little bit different. I worked in a different industry. So it was a really critical point for me. I came to this crossroads and I was like, what's, what's, what's real here as close to real as we can get. And frankly, that's, that's what led me to the blog and book. And that was a big moment for me. Nice, nice. In in terms of success, because, you know, one of the things that, that you talk about in Barking Up the Wrong Tree, uh, you know, the surprising science behind why everything we know about success is mostly wrong. What are some of the paradigms that you started to see that weren't really workable around success? Like what were some of the common traps that you started to see around success? I mean, first and foremost, I would say like people following, you know, uh, the standard kind of boilerplate advice. In other words, not getting to know yourself uh, and not getting to know, you know, not looking at the environments you're putting yourself in and not considering the alignment between the two. I think that's really critical. Now, that sounds really vague and high level. But the point being, you know, oh, okay, you know, uh, go be a doctor or a lawyer uh, or get an MBA and everything will, will work out. Get good grades and, you know, every, everything will work out. And, uh, you know, and, and that's not for everybody. You know, it's like you need to think about, you know, what when you look at the research, you know, most of it from Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania in terms of signature strengths. You know, what are the things you're uniquely good at when people do that? You know, obviously, those are things they're good at. And beyond that, the more time people spend on their signature strengths, uh, the happier they are, the more respected they feel. You know, so if you're not good at science and, you know, you're going in, going to medical school because you think that's what you need to do to be successful, that, that's probably not a prescription for success or happiness. You're, you're kind of following this this checklist that really never took into consideration, you know, who you are. And so for people to look at their signature strengths, to look at what uh, Harvard Business School professor Gotham Makunda called intensifiers, which are personality traits, which, which at the mean, on average, can be negative. But if you pick the right environment, they can actually be a positive. So in other words, someone, someone might be incredibly stubborn. But what do we praise in, in entrepreneurs and, and people who change things? Oh, their persistence, their grit. Well, stubbornness and persistence are kind of the same thing. But, you know, we, we, but in this context, we say in, in, in interpersonal relationships, stubbornness is almost always a negative. In, in a hierarchical corporation with your boss, stubbornness is probably a negative. When you're an entrepreneur, 
you know, if you fold the minute somebody criticizes you, you're probably not going to go building any huge businesses that change the world. So I think people trying to follow the old maxims, the old sayings, the, the you know, just the stuff we hear and just running down a checklist. And if I do this, everything will work out. Human beings are, we're, you know, we're very different. We have different strengths, you know, we have different weaknesses. And without being cognizant of those, you know, it's very difficult to put together, you know, a life that, that will, you'll find both, you know, successful and happy. Mm. Yeah, I like that because, you know, in, in your book, you actually talk about, you know, should we play it safe and do what we're told if we want it to succeed? And so it's kind of addressing this question of, you know, do we play by the rules? Or do we kind of go in the opposite direction? And I see a lot of young entrepreneurs these days really lusting after this idea of disruption, you know, disrupt, disrupting industries, disrupting hierarchical corporate structures, disrupting, you know, financial industries. And so you kind of touch on this, this concept in the beginning of should we play it safe or, or do we not? And so can you unpack some of the core components of, you know, what your, what the research has found? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, what you see is that, uh, Gautam McCund at Harvard Business School talks about, uh, he teaches leadership and, you know, if it was really funny because on on my blog barking up the wrong tree i i you know i'm always looking at the the latest research the latest books and and I, what i found was you know there's so much conflicting research on leadership some research showed that leaders make a huge difference others showed that leaders are often just figureheads with a, with a team of a players you know they can self organize you don't you don't need some figurehead taking the credit and it was conflicting and what was interesting was when i found gotham's research there was a clear answer to why this was the case. And that was that there, uh, there are two types of leaders fundamentally. There are unfiltered and filtered leaders. And filtered leaders are leaders who go through the system. They, you know, they move up the corporation, they get promoted, they get vetted, they have the, all the right, you know, credentials, uh, and eventually they get to the top spot. And the thing is, those leaders don't produce huge changes because they've been so thoroughly vetted by the system that you know, picking candidate one over candidate two, they've been so vetted, they're pretty much the same and they're going to make the same. So they don't result in big changes. And that showed the research that said leaders don't make a difference. But then you have unfiltered leaders. So in other words, entrepreneurs, nobody vets an entrepreneur. They, they create a company from nowhere. Um, you know, if, if somebody, you know, if something happens to the president and the vice president, you know, steps up, well, that's not the guy they elected. You know, he, he might have been picked so that he could bring in uh, the votes in North Carolina and Virginia. Uh, you know, that, that's not who they picked. So what you see is when you look at unfiltered leaders, they produce huge sweeping changes. Now, sometimes those changes are negative, uh, but they produce huge sweeping changes because they don't play by the rules. You, what Gotham's research found is that this predicted, you know, when you looked at presidents and you looked at other arenas, this predicted it. So what I'm getting to here for, 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 for practical purposes is for people less kind of following the rules and figuring out what kind of person they are across the board. So that's in leadership, but you also see this in everywhere from, you know, from genetics to research and creativity and students, you know, is that very often we have natural propensities. And when you look at personality traits, you know, usually over the course of a lifetime, they don't change that dramatically. You know, a lot of personality traits are stable over the course of a lifetime. So, you know, certainly, hey, it behooves you to, to be better. But when you look across the board, you know, from uh, both the research and the advice from like management gurus like Peter Drucker, you often get better results by doubling down on your strengths than by trying to increase your weakness, by trying to improve your weaknesses. 
you know, and what that says is less than, oh, I need to become this. You already are something. And if you know yourself, if you know those things, then you can really start to to look to identify your strengths, double down on those, get really good at that. Maybe surround yourself with people who bring up your weaknesses. Because if you're trying to disrupt, you know, organizations that are smooth running, that are, you know, are, are really well resourced, well funded, you really need to be strong at what you're doing. And that comes from knowing your strengths, doubling down on your strengths, and not trying to be something you're not where you're always going to be grinding your gears. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, what you're what you're talking about at the end of the day is is really a deep level of self-awareness as an individual. And it's it's kind of funny because we see a lot of people, you know, the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world and the Richard Bransons of the world talking a lot today about the importance as entrepreneurs, as business owners, as professionals, whatever whatever your profession may be, of of a certain level of self awareness and being able to to cultivate that, and it seems so simple, but it's kind of interesting to see you know the 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 research really back that up because I think you know when we grow up when we're younger we have this perception that if we just follow a very specific path you know in school or at least we're told if you follow this path in school that it will lead you to a certain result that you'll get a great job. And you'll eventually make a bunch of money and that that is sort of like the the pinnacle of happiness. But I, one of the things that I thought was cool in your in your book is you talk about the research that Sean Anker has talked about from Harvard. And it shows that college grades aren't any more predictive of of life success than rolling a dice, which I was like, really? I thought, you know, like you would think for sure that there's just a connection between some of these pieces. And then and then the other study that showed that, uh, oh, you know, over 700 American millionaires showed that their average college GPA was like 2.9 or something like that. And that really blew my mind because I think for so many people, there there is this like sort of clear shot that we usually have in our mind that might not be the right path. So it sounds like from what you're saying, having the self-awareness to double down on your strengths and knowing when to actually deviate from the course can be a huge benefit. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean, understanding understanding your strengths, you know, is really critical. And I think the thing, the next question most people ask is how do they, how do they figure out what their strengths are? And, you know, the first thing uh, you see is, again, uh, Peter Drucker is a management guru talks about feedback analysis, which is basically making predictions about projects you're working on, things you're doing, writing them down, and then revisiting them and starting to see, hey, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I'm good at predicting this. I'm good at seeing how this will go. And I'm terrible over here. I think I'm great at this and I'm not. It doesn't work out. You know, that's a good way of doing it that you can, you know, totally easily control. But I think I think most people actually actually won't do that. <laughs> I would say another way that's uh, really valuable is uh, the research shows that your friends often know you better than you do. And so getting anonymous feedback, you know, uh, basically, you know, getting getting friends to tr trust one friend to get emails, you know, and put it down a series of questions, you know, maybe not too many, put down a series of questions, have all of your friends, have your five or 10 friends email it to one other friend, and then have that friend strip off the names and give you the answers to the questions. Now, this way, it's anonymous. Nobody's, nobody's, no, no feelings are going to get hurt. They're not going to know. People are a lot more honest. There's research on this. People are a lot more honest when, when they know it's anonymous. And you're going to see patterns. You're going to see some noise, but you're going to see some patterns. You're going to hear people say, 
oh, really good at X, really bad at Y. And if you ask five friends and three of them say that, you should pay attention, you know, and then you can start to get an idea and then you can start to, to look at your life with those issues highlighted. You can say, you know what? Wow, that those have been my stumbling blocks. Those were the times when it was problematic. So I think it's really critical to actually do the work. You know, most most people will will hear, know thyself, and they'll go, yes, and then they don't do anything about it. Or they do it and it's just ruminating or or telling themselves, you know, pretty lies, as opposed to actually, you know, putting a system in place to get that feedback and figure out, you know, this is these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses. And then if I align myself with a context, with an environment, an institution, a group, an organization that values what I'm good at, that doesn't isn't concerned with what I'm bad at or can compensate for what I'm bad at, that's often a prescription for success in many arenas of life. Yeah, I, I love that. I think because, you know, what you're talking about actually segues perfectly into my next question. But, you know, one of the things that, that I really like in there is that you have to be willing and, and open to not only go and elicit this feedback about your strengths and your weaknesses or vulnerabilities, but you also have to be able to execute on it and actually do something about it because just getting that information isn't actually enough, which leads me into my next question, which is, do nice guys finish last? Because this this kind of like ties into what we were just talking about before. If you're a really nice guy, you might not want to actually go on a list of that information. You might not want to receive that information. You might not want to action on that feedback. So I'll leave it to you. This was researched by Adam Grant at Wharton. And uh, and Adam's a very nice guy himself. Uh, Adam Adam basically broke people into to, uh, to three groups, givers, matchers, and takers. Givers are people who altruistically give give to others because they enjoy doing it. Matchers are people who try to give any, keep an even balance of, of give and take. They have a strong feeling about fairness. Uh, and then you have takers, who are people who try and get as much for themselves selfishly and try to give as little back as possible. Adam looked at the uh, success metrics in a number of different uh, roles and professions, and his initial results were actually pretty disturbing to him because what he found was that the givers were disproportionately represented at the bottom of success metrics in a number of areas. It looked like nice guys were finishing last. But then when Adam ran through the full you know, data, what he saw was that the results were actually bimodal, that you saw uh, the givers, the nice guys, disproportionately represented at the bottom and at the top. And, you know, while that may seem a little odd at first, I think when you when you think about it, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's something that we can we can all relate to because we all know somebody who is a you know, who's a martyr, who who just does everything for other people, gets exploited by takers, um, gets taken for granted, and they end up doing so much for others that they, they don't do enough for themselves. But by the same token, I think we also all know somebody who's a total mensch, who, you know, really goes out of their way to help people. Everybody loves them. Everybody thinks they're the greatest. And when that person needs something, people are going out of their way to back that person up and to help and assist them because everybody thinks that they're great and every, everyone feels indebted to them. So, you know, so givers, it's, you know, it's not an issue of nice guys finishing last. It's an issue of being a nice guy in a way that you're, you're not going to get, you know, exploited, that you're, you're not going to be a doormat, you know, so nice guys can do quite well, but they have to make sure that they're, they don't turn into a doormat. Yeah. Uh, I like that. It's about, it's about finding the, finding the balance within, within that mix. And I love the book because it really does dive into so many of the different 
sort of stigmas that we have around success. Like you talk about, you know, do, do quitters never win and do winners never quit? And I feel like this is a really sort of challenging question for a lot of people to answer in their life. You know, if they're stuck in a job that they aren't really liking, it's like, do, do I quit and move on? You know, or they got a degree in engineering and they find themselves doing that career, but they actually really don't like it. You know, do they, do they move away from that or their business is really struggling and they can sort of see the end is near. So what was some of the research that you found in terms of knowing maybe when it's time to quit and, and how that actually impacts not only our perception of success, but is it predictive of our future uh, success? I, I mean, the the thing here is that like right now, you know, grit is kind of having its uh, moment in the sun and everybody's talking about, you know, grit and persistence and resilience. And there's no doubt, you know, it's it's a very powerful personality trait. But as usual, you know, in the mainstream media, everything tends to go all in and act like, you know, this one thing is the answer to, to all. But the truth is, it's like, be realistic. We have to quit some things. If I didn't, if I'd still be playing t-ball, you know, if I, I mean, if I didn't, I'd, I'd still be playing with crayons and action figures, you know, like when I was six. It's like, we all quit things. You know, it's the issue of being able to show grit where it matters. You know, so it's, it's not this issue of never give up. Oh, no, you should give up plenty of things. And what you see is, is that you know what really works out best is when people use a form of strategic quitting when people when people know how to be gritty where it matters and when people use strategic quitting which is basically to look around at your life and say what things am i doing every day right routinely that just aren't providing value you know where where i'm not doing those things and go out of your way to quit those things because that frees up more time in that way Quit is actually the friend of grit because the more stuff, the more crap you're doing that doesn't produce value, when you stop doing that, it gives you more time to produce those K Anders Ericsson, those 10,000 hours that lead to expertise. Well, where are those hours going to come from? You only got 24 hours in a day. So you need to quit stuff to be able to double down on the things you want to be gritty at. And the other thing that's a big issue is if you look at a, a great book by Peter Sims called Little Bets, you see across the board from entrepreneurs to comedians to, you know, Trying new things, knowing that most of them aren't going to work out. So a little bet, a low investment, giving something a shot, not not signing up for a year gym membership, trying the, the free week uh, or taking one yoga class, not signing up for, for 20 uh, personal training instructions, giving things a shot. You know, that's how you discover new opportunities, how you meet new people, how you, you know, find new hobbies. The world's changing very quickly. We always need to be exploring and, and, and looking at these new things. And if we're just, you know, head down, focused on grit 24-7, you know, the world's, the world's changing. I mean, that you, you could be the horse and buggy in the age of the car. You don't you want to be able to stay on top of things. So in that way, thinking about your time very often like a, you know, like a venture capitalist and taking 5 to 10% of your time to say, hey, I'm going to try 10 new things. And I know. Like a venture capitalist, seven of them aren't going to work out. Two of them might break even, and one of them is going to be the next, you know, Google or Facebook. That's how a venture capitalist might look at it. And if you do the same thing and say, "Hey, I'm going to try some new things. I'm going to. It's going to be low time investment, low resource, and I know that I'm going to end up quitting seven of them. Two, maybe I'll give a, a little bit more of a shot, and one of them is going to be something awesome that's going to create a new opportunity for me. So in that way, you can use strategic quitting to actually, you know, help you move forward. And on the flip side, there's no doubt 
for the one or two things in your life that are really critical, you know, your career, your relationships, you know, showing grit, being dedicated, leveraging the research in terms of how to stick with something and be persistent, you know, is absolutely valuable. We just need to keep a balance between the two because neither one, uh, <laughs> you know, never giving up on anything ever uh, and never quitting and, and, and you know, and, uh, and also quitting everything immediately. Uh, neither one of those uh, leads to success in life. Yeah, no, I, I love what you said there. As soon as, soon as you said it, I, I never actually thought about it like that. But you said quitting in the, is the friend of grit. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I interviewed uh, it, it sounds very similar to Greg McEwen's concept of essentialism. You know, this idea that we need to quit and, and sort of annex and get rid of the things in our lives that aren't working and, and that, you know, we can just sort of start letting go of in order to really focus in on and, and hone and craft these parts of our life that are extraordinarily important. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds like a, a similar concept. And it also sounds like the research behind that is really starting to is really starting to, to back some of these concepts that have sort of been around for a while. You know, one of the things that you really talk about in the book is this sort of paradigm or, or dichotomy between knowledge and the importance of our social network. And what I mean by that is this, this idea of how important is it to know everything and, and, and obtain as much knowledge as we can versus how important is it to know everyone? that we possibly can. Um, so can you unpack some of that infrastructure there? Because I think in our modern society, we see a lot of emphasis starting to really shift to the power of your network versus just how much information can you download into your brain about a specific topic? Yeah, I, I mean, what's really critical is, you know, looking at the looking at the two there. I mean, first and foremost, you know, having a large network pays off in terms of finding a job, uh, doing well in that job. There's consistent research that that shows that, you know, it's much easier to find a job and move up in a job. There's the, the success benefits of having a big network, you know, are, are hard to downplay. You know, those those are critical. However, uh, you know, there's also research that uh, what was the what was the fancy academic jargon? It was something like uh, extroversion is inversely correlated with individual proficiency or some kind of some kind of jargon like that. Basically, what it meant was the more extroverted you are, the worse you are at your job. <laughs> And basically, you know, if you're spending all your time chatting and socializing, you know, you don't have a lot of time for the hard work in the trenches of skill development, or at least to some degree, there is certainly a trade off there that the more time you spend texting is the less time you spend reading, you know, uh, the less time you spend, you know, really working on on getting better at computer coding, you know, or whatever, whatever it is you may be. And I actually, you know, looked at the research, and I think it was something like 80 or 90% of professional athletes uh, identified themselves as introverts, which again, not too surprising, even if it's a team sport, you know, you need to spend a lot of time in the batting cage. You need to spend a lot of time, you know, shooting free throws, a lot of time running sprints until the sun goes down, you know, to really get to be the best at what you do. So there's this trade-off that we need to look at. Having a, a big network, knowing people is extraordinarily valuable, you know, but skill development is something that usually takes place, you know, on your own knowledge acquisition, usually something that takes place on your own. So what you see when you look at a lot of the research is that uh, extroverts, you know, often do better by many success metrics because because most of us, you know, are not trying to be the best, the, the absolute best in our field. And knowing people helps you get jobs and move up in jobs. Yet, 
you look and introverts are far more likely to be uh, experts in their domain. You look at top athletes, you look at top musicians, top artists, uh, you know, introverts, uh, you know, on average, introverts get better grades. They're more likely to get PhDs. They're more likely to get Phi Beta Kappa keys, you know. So it's a really an issue of, again, not so much changing who you are, but realizing where you fit, because most people are not going to change dramatically in terms of their levels of introversion and extroversion. Those are, again, personality traits that are relatively stable over time. So for somebody to say, oh, wow, you know, I'm a total introvert. You know, well, then maybe you don't want to get a sales job, <laughs> you know, or I'm a total extrovert. I love, you know, being surrounded by people and chatting. And was, well, then maybe you don't want to be, you know, a computer programmer. You know, so to sit there and really start to, to say, like, what, what am I like? What are my strengths? And then to basically say, yeah, I need to emphasize more in terms of uh, building a network or in terms of skill development. That's where, you know, I'm going to be on that spectrum. Uh, and then past that, you know, we can, you know, most people are somewhere in the middle. Most people are not extreme extroverts, extreme introverts. Most people are what are called ambiverts. And you know, so for people to understand, hey, I do have the ability to connect with people. When do I need to turn that on? Or, hey, I do have the ability to buckle down and do my work. You know, when do I, when do I need, how do I turn that on? When do I need to turn that on? So again, it's really an issue of, of self-understanding and balancing that level of, of, of networking with, uh, with skill development. Yeah, I, I like that. And I like that. I really love the fact that you touched on introverts, ambu uh, extroverts and ambiverts, because it's, it's one of those important pieces where oftentimes we can get stuck in, I, you know, I see a lot of people, especially in the introverted category that get, they label themselves an introvert and it's, it, it becomes more of an excuse and, and more of a, a, of a sort of like negative crutch than anything else. And I love the fact that, you know, you kind of touched on some of the strengths of both sides and being able to identify when to turn on one component versus the other. So this kind of brings me into, into my next question, which is how important are things like charisma and confidence when it comes to success? Because I think that, you know, especially in North American culture, confidence seems to be this huge sort of driving force for what we see in a lot of mainstream, very successful entrepreneurs and, and business, you know, businessmen and businesswomen. So in terms of believing in ourselves and cultivating a really rich sense of confidence, how important do you feel like that actually is for long-term uh, viable success? I mean, there's there's no doubt that, you know, success, uh, success is correlated. I'm sorry, uh, confidence is correlated with success. Uh, confidence has an enormous impact on how other people see us. Uh, there's some research. Uh, I won't get too deep into the study, but there's some research out there that basically people will choose confidence over expertise. In other words, if I see two candidates and one of them seems extremely confident, the other, you know, seems seems underconfident and I can see their track record. So I know how they have performed in their past. People will often pick the lower performing confident person over the higher performing underconfident person. So confidence has an enormous impact on how other people perceive you. That said, you know, uh, you know, it's it's this is actually this this subject, I, I think, is, is really interesting and really challenging because 
it's one where there's very little, you know, introverts and extroverts both have uh, their little camps and they can they can go to war. Nobody ever argues for less confidence. <laughs> Nobody walks around saying, I want to be less confident. There aren't a lot of books that teach you how to be less confident yet. And I think that's I think that's a semantic issue. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a semantic issue because we all like the sound of confidence. Confidence has a positive spin on it. What we don't like is the words narcissism and hubris. And let's be frank, you know, what's a big part of narcissism and hubris is being overly confident, being ridiculously confident, thinking you're the greatest, you know, and, and frankly, telling everybody around you uh, all too often how true that is. And on the flip side, you know, we think, oh, lack of confidence. Oh, that's awful. It's terrible. You got to build that up. Yet we all love the concept of humility. We think that humble people are great and fantastic. And what you see is that while confidence mm -hmm. in the moment, you know, in, in the actual moment uh, can be a performance enhancer, you know, very often when confidence gets out of hand, you know, you, you get two really awful results, uh, which is number one, you get delusional. You know, if you, if you believe that you're really, really good at something and if you're overconfident and you're not as good as you are, you know, hey, life's going to punch you in the face. You know, as, as, as I like to say, there's no such thing as a pretty good alligator wrestler. You know, it's like you either go, you either are or you aren't. And if you aren't, reality is going to correct that idea you have really fast. And so, <laughs> so, so, so being overconfident, there are areas uh, like that. But even, you know, the stock market, anything else, being overconfident can be really dangerous. Um, and then there's the second thing, which is, you know, do, do, do you like narcissists? Do you like, no, you know, is that while we like confidence, um, you know, definitely people who are too confident, people who are narcissists, we don't like them. They're jerks. And not only that, you know, having a perception of power, you know, in yourself is correlated with dehumanizing other people, treating people badly. We all know that, you know, pe people get powerful and they, they change, you know, they, they become jerks. Now, what's the flip side? Low confidence. Now, we always think that's terrible. But hey, low confidence is strongly connected to learning. Because when you don't think you have all the answers, you actually listen to other people, something that overconfident, powerful people don't do. They don't listen to anybody. So people with low confidence listen. They learn. They, you know, they grow. And they don't alienate other people by acting so awesome all the time. So it looks like a real conundrum here. Because, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, you can, you know, be, you can impress other people, uh, uh, but you're going to be a jerk and you're going to be delusional. Uh, or, you know, you can be good at learning things and you can uh, and be approachable to other people, but you're not going to feel good about yourself and you're not going to be very impressive. So the truth is that the confidence paradigm, the self-esteem paradigm is, it seems like it's kind of flawed as, at its core. And some people have written about this, like, uh, like the esteemed uh, psychologist Albert Ellis, where he said another problem with self-esteem is that, is that it's either delusional or contingent. Delusional in that you think you're better than you are, or contingent in the sense of you have this great vision of yourself, but it's propped up on your performance. In other words, every day you need to wake up and go slay a dragon in order to justify feeling good about yourself. And, that, and the day that you don't slay the dragon, the day that you don't close the sale, your self-esteem crashes and you end up on this roller coaster and you're constantly, you know, up, down, depending on your performance. Or it's like a treadmill where you're just constantly running to keep up, you know, what your performance with your vision of yourself. And that's that's not fun. So one of the things that's really interesting is uh, the answer to this doesn't didn't come from the latest research. It actually comes from 
Buddhism, you know, which has been around for you know, over a thousand years, is self-compassion. And lately, research has been done on self-compassion in academia, Kirsten Neff at the University of Texas at Austin. And what you see is self-compassion is instead of self-esteem, where you're trying to build yourself up to something you're not, uh, self-compassion is having an accurate view of reality and forgiving yourself when you underperform. And what's interesting is that self-compassion, uh, a quick overview of the research, basically shows that it has all the benefits of self-esteem without the negatives. People perform better, they feel better, they're likable, it's not correlated with narcissism, and people who do it don't feel like a loser because they're not on this roller coaster, this treadmill of, of producing results to feel good about themselves. So the answer to confidence ends up being uh, that you know, it's the paradigms broken that we that we should step away from self self confidence, self esteem for a little while, and start looking at self compassion. And instead of focusing on trying to be so awesome, uh, we should focus on forgiving ourselves. Damn, <laughs> that was that was fen that was phenomenal. Um, I mean, I I love the bit about self compassion because for you know what really sort of clicked for me or what I took away was that for a healthy sense of grit, self compassion seems to be sort of like the unlock code or like the you know the secret key because you know we can have grit in an unhealthy way where we're just pushing ourselves to the you know end degrees or on the other end of the spectrum where you know if we've messed up and and, uh, and, and we've, you know, sort of screwed up in a certain situation in work or life or relationship that we can try and overuse that, that competency or that trait of grit. Whereas with self-compassion, it actually allows us to pause and take a moment and reflect and learn on what we need to learn and, and then move forward. And so it seems to me that, that self-compassion might be like the hidden, uh, gem and it's sort of like hidden, not secret, but, but component to grit that is often overlooked and might be, you know, a really huge key in, in terms of creating that sense of confidence where people can see a, a, a very genuine sense of confidence versus that narcissism because narcissism seems to be, or at least using the word narcissistic seems to be huge. As soon as guys, especially guys, right? Like men are usually dubbed or deemed to be more narcissistic. Uh, oftentimes in women, it seems to be a, a very like masculine trait because oftentimes we're, you know, we try and <laughs> we try and overcompensate, uh, uh, you know, through self, you know, over overcompensate self-esteem. And so, you know, it seems to be like this, this, new sort of new buzzword for men as soon as they sort of uh, get or tip over on the side of being a little bit too confident all of a sudden they're narcissists so it's a it's a really interesting perspective for i think everyone out there to start to cultivate this sense of self-compassion one of the other things that you really start to address is this idea of in terms of success should we you know work constantly or find a deep sense of work-life balance. And, you know, we've sort of seen these two uh, paradigms warring against each other, right? You've got guys like Tim Ferriss, who have the four-hour work week, who are like, growth hack your way into only working a few hours per week. And then you've got guys like Gary Vaynerchuk, whose message is basically like, work yourself to the bone. And so there's like this opposing force that seems to be going on. So I would love for you to sort of unpack some of this maybe psychology or research behind those sort of counter opposing forces. Yeah. I mean, basically what you see, what you see with the research is that, uh, 
working harder produces more results. Ceteris paribus, uh, you know, there might be diminishing returns, but, you know, you work longer, you work harder, ceteris paribus, all the things being equal, uh, you will do better. And that's and that's what causes the problem, <laughs> you know, because if 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 working harder didn't produce more results, people would likely stop doing it. So that's where the initial problem uh, problem starts. And and now, you know, we have this growing. So, you know, if you want to be infinitely successful, then, yes, you should work infinitely hard. But the real issue is that n- nobody wants to just work 24-7. And when you look at people who do that, uh, you know, and I profile a, a few extremely successful people, uh, you know, like uh, the baseball player Ted Williams, Albert Einstein, uh, what you see is that while it produces enormous results in terms of career uh, and success, typically the biggest toll it takes is on relationships. And these people, they basically destroy their relationships because in the end, again, you have 24 hours in a day. And if you're the more your time you're devoting you only have 24 hours a day. It is a scarce resource. We have to put the economics lens on this. Uh, if, if you're putting another hour towards work, it's one hour less towards your family. And, you know, and so when people go all in on success, on, you know, their career, uh, something sacrifices and it's usually it's usually relationships. And when you look at the research consistently relationships, uh, you know, are what produces the most happiness. Uh, and while and other other research uh, by Sonia Lubomirsky showed that, you know, uh, success is more likely to follow happiness than happiness is likely to follow success. So you've got a tricky situation here. And the issue with work-life balance that comes up is that the world has changed. I forget the exact numbers, but basically 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the work-life balance, basically the term basically didn't exist. It was barely mentioned. And now it's nonstop mentioned. You know, so our grandparents weren't dealing with this. The world has changed. And basically what it comes down to is you have the ability to work 24-7. You know, you've got your phone in your pocket. You can check email. You know, it before, hey, you know, in, in the 60s, hey, you know, if you call me at 7 p.m., I'm sorry, that document's at the office. I'm not going to be able to get it till tomorrow morning. Well, now documents are in the cloud. I can pull them down, you know, whenever I whenever I need, you know, you can reach anybody via email, via text, and everybody's constantly got their phone in their pocket. So in other words, you always have the option to work. The doors to the office don't close at 5 p.m. anymore. So. So not only is there that issue of 24 hours in a day, how much does work get? How much does your family get? Now, you before it was an easy decision. 5 p.m., you go home, you play with your kids. That's it. Now you have to make a decision. You always have to make a decision. Do I go in the other room and, you know, whip out the laptop and keep working on that presentation? You know, uh, you're sitting there with your with with your loved ones. Do you take your phone out and start responding to work emails? You always have a choice. And that choice is stressful. Because in the past, there wasn't an option. Now it's on you. So not only do you have the issue of you can work 24-7, but you have to also decide. So it's your fault. (laughs) So if it doesn't go the way you want it, who do you blame? You, because you have a choice. When we don't have choices, you, you know, you might not be thrilled with the situation, but you shrug your shoulders. It wasn't your fault. Now, you know, hey... If my, uh, you know, if your spouse is angry with you because you're not spending enough time with them, you chose to work. It's your fault. (laughs) If you spend plenty of time with your spouse, you got a great relationship, but you don't get that promotion because you didn't want to take that trip to China. Guess what? It's your fault. (laughs) So the problem is 
that all of a sudden we have this on us. So what it comes down to in the end is, again, kind of that issue we were talking about earlier with taking the boilerplate response, taking the, the checklist box that everybody else is using. Everybody needs a personal definition of success, and they need to make a decision, and they need to make a decision because the world used to make the decision for you. Now you need to decide, how much am I going to work? Where's the line going to be? Because if you don't draw the line, the world's not going to draw a line. They're just going to tell you to keep working. You know, there, there's, there is no. And we have these enormous pressures on us. You go on the Internet, you're seeing the smartest, most talented, most rich, rich people all over the planet. So standards are through the roof. You know, we have these absurd standards and we have the ability to work 24-7. That's a prescription for disaster. So you, you will never be able, these, these unreachable standards you know, and the ability to keep going, you're going to be like a hamster on a hamster wheel. So you need a personal definition of success where you draw a line and you say, this is how much I'm going to do. This is how much I'm going to work. This is how much I'm willing to travel. And, and if I don't get the promotion because of that, I accept that. But most people, you know, we, we want it all. You know, you want to think you can do both. There's only 24 hours in a day, you know. So everybody needs a personal definition of success instead of expecting the world to to provide that line because the world's not going to do it. I love it, man. It, it uh, you know, it really reminds me of this this quote from uh, Louis C.K. And he yeah. says, everything's amazing and no one's happy. And he's talking about you know, sitting on sitting on a in a chair in a plane with Wi-Fi, and the guy beside him is bitching about how the Wi-Fi is slow. And he's like, you know, everything's amazing, and no one's happy. I think it's it's a really profound comment because I, you know, what I hear you saying is really this idea of you know what makes a successful life is really around the choices that you make to define what your success is, not based off of somebody else that you've been following on the internet who, you know, may have grew up in a trust fund or, you know, was born into money or lives this very lavish lifestyle or, you know, happens to sacrifice their family and their friends so that they can make an extra hundred or a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. But, but to actually define what that looks like for ourselves so that we can start to say, this is my success. And this is how I define it. So is, is that what you believe, you know, after all of this research and after all of these studies and, and, and sort of going through some of these stigmas that we see around success, is that what you've seen that really makes a successful life from some of the most successful people that you got the chance to study? I mean, I, I think what it really comes down to, if I had to say it in a word, is alignment. You know, that issue of knowing your strengths, knowing your intensifiers, knowing what you want, and then finding an environment that rewards that finding an environment that rewards your signature strengths, what you're good at, what you do, because again, you know, uh, success follows happiness more than happiness follows, follows success. You, you want to be thinking about those things. And in terms of work-life balance, was it Nash and Stevenson, two researchers at Harvard did, they surveyed a bunch of people who had achieved something approximating, uh, very successful people who had achieved something approximating work-life balance. And they realized basically there were four metrics that people needed to be thinking about. And because if you, if you focus on one metric, like money, money, make the number go up, you know, it's like that didn't bring lasting happiness. Uh, and by the same token, you know, it's just thinking about relationships, but you can't pay the rent. That's not too thrilling either. There were, there were four metrics that really mattered. You know, happiness, was it uh, achievement, uh, significance, and legacy? And what that means, happiness is, are you enjoying what you're doing? Achievement is, you know, are you getting ahead or are you achieving your goals? 
significance was, is what you're doing benefiting those you love? And number four was really the issue of, are you benefiting the world, you know, um, legacy? Are you really providing something that makes the world a better place, even in a small way? You know, are you kind of giving back? And when people filled those buckets, you know, they felt better. That's, that's a well-rounded life. And what people can, can really start to do is if you look at your calendar, look how you're spending your time. You know, are you, are you depositing a little bit in each one of those four buckets? Because you're going you're gonna to be more well-rounded and have a better life. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're not doing anything that makes you happy, you're just working all the time, you're missing that first bucket. You know, if you're not working to get ahead, you know, and, and achieving your goals, you're not going to be happy. If, if, if what you do has no positive benefit on the people you love, you know, or in the long term, if you don't really feel like you're contributing to the world, you're not making the world a better place, you're not helping anyone but yourself, you know, any of those four things can be a serious weakness. But when people focus, you know, on, you know, happiness, achievement, significance, legacy, and deposit a little bit in each one of those, those, those buckets, you know, on a weekly or monthly basis, you know, that's something a little bit closer to achieving work-life balance. And then, like I said, if you're thinking about you're knowing yourself, and you're picking the right pond, you're finding the right environment or context that rewards your strengths, you know, that's a pretty good prescription for success. That's so good. Well, Eric, listen, man, I, I really appreciate having you on the podcast. I think, you know, what uh, the work that you're doing and, and the book that you wrote, I think is incredibly, incredibly important, especially in this main, uh, especially in the sort of like our modern culture where we're starting to see, especially the, you know, there's some research coming out now that's showing that a lot of millennials are going to basically be the first generation to pass away or die with less than their parents. And it's not because of what the, again, what the research is showing, it's not because the, the economy is bad or that, that there's not enough jobs for them or et cetera, et cetera. It's that they're choosing to start to look at meaning over money and start to actually have an intentional sense of purpose in their life, whether that's through work-life balance or being able to choose and, and as you said, align the work that they do in the world with 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 happiness, with a sense of direction, with a sense of purpose. So I really appreciate what you're doing. And uh, for all the listeners out there, where can they go find you? Where can they go find your book? Uh, and what do you have up and coming in the future that, that they might want to know about? Uh, my blog is barking up the wrong tree. Uh, the URLs, uh, the URLs, uh, is, uh, is a little hard to spell. So, uh, if you just Google barking up the wrong tree blog, or if you Google my name, Eric Barker, uh, and my book is barking up the wrong tree, you can find it on, uh, Amazon. The best way to keep up with what I'm doing, uh, basically I send one email out a week with the latest of, you know, research, uh, and it's all actionable stuff you can use, you know, to improve your life in anywhere from happiness to productivity to negotiating relationships. Uh, it's a sign up for my weekly email that's on the blog. So if they just, if you just Google barking up the wrong tree or go to Amazon barking up the wrong tree, you can, you can see what I'm up to. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks, sir. Thank you very much for being on the Man Talks podcast. And uh, for all the listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Leave us a review. It goes a long way to uh, helping us get it into the ears and hands of other people. Uh, and head on over to mantalks.com and uh, check out more blog posts, more podcasts, and some of the live events that we have coming up in cities around North America. So this is it. This is uh, me, Connor Beaton, signing off for this week. And we'll catch you next week on another episode of Man Talks with another inspiring conversation and another inspiring individual. Mm -hmm.